welcome to episode 292 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Ash Baker. Andrew Swafford. And Dylan Moore. And in today's episode, we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will be talking about a movie that is in no way socially relevant to today's happenings. <laughs> and that is 1995 uh. Safe. As part of our Patreon picks, this is a pick by Chad Newsom. Uh, again, no relevance to current situations that we're in. Anyway, it was a pick that was made long before the current situation. Actually, I think I think it was made with the intention to do this. I think Chad is behind the coronavirus. What? Wow. Uh, That's a. Uh, listen to our mail. I don't know if it's worth it, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm putting this on Chet. He, you know, he's got nothing else to do. His his school's out is all online for the rest of the spring. This is this is well, what he can do. That seems with. like his own problem. Well, he he also created the seems coronavirus, like so we had to watch this movie. Yeah. So there's a lot of problems he's dealing with. <laughs> Man, I can't believe we're dedicating a podcast to the person who created the coronavirus. Hey, hashtag you know, hashtag get that clout, well, baby. He pays us. He does so. pay us. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. There we it's go. It's all about the money. Um, Ash, I'm gonna kick it uh, off with you. You had a movie you want to talk about? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> for the first time, I watched uh, Martin Scorsese's um, King of Comedy, which um, was a surprise to say the least. Um, I really didn't know what to expect with this movie. I just, you know, heard it was good and uh, put it on. <laughs> and man, was it... Hey, I, I like comedy. It, 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 <laughs> <laughs> it was... I could use a pick me It up. was fucking wild. This movie was crazy. And I loved it. Um, I think one of the things that I admire about... Um, Scorsese as a director and uh is that you know he has this sort of thing where he makes these like really tough movies like Goodfellas and Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and it's like these like testosterone movies it's like you know like guys being dudes um but then he can also (laughs) make a movie like Alice doesn't live here anymore and like um after hours and uh and I feel like this would be in that category of just like um weirder Scorsese that's it's like not that um that like uh the departed like like uh just like man movie Scorsese um and I really really enjoyed it well it's funny you say that I think that you could also make the case that the king of comedy is like almost exactly taxi driver. You could right? make that case. I out. I think it's I think it's different. Um I mean obviously it's different, but uh you could make the case that it has like the same shape as taxi driver. Yeah. But oh, um yeah. and I I wouldn't disagree with you. But um I th- I think it's different in that, you know, not only do you have like um uh R- Richard R- Richard Pupkin 
What what's his first name? Uh, Rupert. 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 Rupert yeah. Pupkin. I was like, man, you know, you get his name like a trillion times, and I can't even remember it. Um, Dick Pupkin. Yeah, um, you get oh, like Dylan. Rupert Pupkin, who's like this absolute like maniac, like egotist, and like you watch it and. I was watching it with a friend who I've been quarantined with, and my friend says about 10 minutes into the movie, oh my god, he's Trump. And I was like, shit. Mm. I was like, shit, I didn't think of it until you just said that. Well, he's, he's Trump without inherited wealth. Yeah, 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 completely. And, um, and, and with a completely different goal, obviously, um, mm. which is, I, I want to be... But... But also the same goal of like, I just want everyone to be obsessed. Right, with me. right. I right. want everyone to think I'm the yeah, best. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, but you also have the um, the sort of like sidekick m- maniac girl character who is wildly interesting to me. Um, there's like those scenes where uh, you get that like very. Um, uh, um, shoot the uh fuck what's the what's the uh the the kubrick movie with the candles uh barry lyndon, barry lyndon. <laughs> you get that i'm glad I, I got you for the alley <laughs> thank you andrew <laughs> and that's the kubrick yeah, the, movie with you... the candles I mean, name another Kubrick movie with candles. Yeah, name another Kubrick. Eyes wide shut. Okay, okay, but but Barry Lyndon has that very (laughs) famous. There's candles in a lot of things. Well, Barry Lyndon has that very famous scene that's lit only by candles. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. So anyway, but we get like that very Barry Lyndon scene with her, like there are all those sparking candles, and he's like wrapped in tape. In the chair, Taped up? yeah, and, uh-huh. and she's like being uh, um, so oh wild, God. and she's a like, she's like amazing, <laughs> but she's so wild. Sandra Barnhart is very yeah, good. just yeah. absolutely out of this world, and uh, um, yeah, I think it, I think it's probably one of my favorite of Scorsese's. Um, I heard a lot of like, comp- I haven't seen Joker, um, but I've heard a lot of people talking about. Um, how that movie um maybe not directly references but sort of riffs or takes inspiration from king of comedy and it actually makes me a lot more interested to watch joker now just because like i loved king of comedy so much Hmm. (laughs) that's that's zach's disapproving (laughs) anytime i wish we could just live in a world where we could move past you know Whatever that is. I, I, I would like somebody to get on Photoshop and Photoshop the Barry Lyndon poster and just put the one with the candles as the title. <laughs> the, with that font, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of do too. That's, that really, like, yes, a very like a painterly portrait of Sandra Bernhardt and Jerry Langford in tape. Yeah, oh my God. I'm I'm looking for the font. I need it. Um, uh, <laughs> Probably I'm like one saying. of my uh, like favorite like small bits of like show business thing that's going on in uh, 
King of Comedy is after, you know, all the machinations go into play in the back half of the movie and the producer friend or whatever gets a call from Jerry Langford while he's kidnapped. Oh my God. And the first yes. thing that they say is like, oh, uh, Miguel, is this you again? I, I can't remember that person's name. It's, but like, it's Marcello like a guy who or keeps something. coming, calling, and can make a complete impersonation of of Jerry Langford and tries to like I I, I don't know I like get a hold of somebody or, or talk to Langford himself that uh, that there's there's just this built in confusion about identity and personality and uh, built into like uh, uh, technology and representation and just that small bit to where it's just like, yeah, uh, you know, the actual Langford's voice can be replicated and his identity taken in this weird way to where it kind of allows the rest of this to happen. It's a very strange, small point. Very nice. Um, well, King of Comedy, is it, I, I don't think, does it streaming places? If you look closely, you can find it. <sighs> All right. Well, <laughs> that's vague and unhelpful. <laughs> You can find anything. Yeah. Also, there is a Cinematary episode about um, King of Comedy that you can go listen to after you And there's the a, there's a Cinematary episode about Stanley Kubrick's The One with the Candles. <laughs> You'd like to listen to that as well. There is. <laughs> I think we need to go back yeah, and retroactively change that. the title of that episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then we got to call up uh, the, the guy we talked to who we interviewed about the movie and uh, let him know as well. Right. So, boom. Um, all right. Well, I'm going to go on to our, our next one. This is one I caught actually a week and a half ago or so, a while back. Um, but it is uh, Pompoko from 1994. It is uh, directed by Iseo Takahata of uh, Studio Ghibli fame. Um, people are probably more familiar with his films Grave of the Fireflies or The Tales of Princess Kaguya, which I know we... Um, we talked about uh, a while back in terms of the the best of the decade list, um, but this is kind of the one. This is the one that they forget about with Takahata, as well as the one that people find out just the base uh, level of what what happens in this, which is these raccoons have giant testicles, and that's what we latch on to. Which fair, I don't dispute. It's hard not to, and and they're pretty prominent. Hard not to like, but not as that. prominent as you would think, but still prominent enough to warrant mentioning the large testicles that these raccoons have. I want to also mention are that they're they not prone to raccoons. Latching? What are they prone to latching onto things? Oh, they are prone to latching on the things. Let me <laughs> tell you, there's a lot of fighting in this, and those testicles are utilized. Um, they are not. They're not raccoons, though, um, because here in America we're. Uh, ignorant we had to try we had to translate these um this deep japanese mythology of the tanuki into the raccoons because that's how we're going to be able to filter this information um but the story takes place in let's say like around the time that the movie came out 94 you know kind of mid 90s um and it follows the this band of tanuki that live in the tama hills which is outside of tokyo and this is at a point where tokyo is starting to expand um and create more suburban housing and and just life outside of the city 
And so uh, the Tama Hills are um, in trouble because they are, are in the path of this rapid development of houses and shopping malls and things of that nature. And so the Tanuki in, in the hills decide that they're going to fight back. They're going to all band together rather than fighting each other and, and fight back against the humans as they start to encroach on their land. Um, and <laughs> for a movie that includes for, you know, posterity and posterity's sake raccoons with giant testicles fighting humans um but very nuanced view of like urbanization and urban sprawl and and gentrification and just the uh the development of 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 land um where cities start to kind of expand and engulf the the nature around it which kind of kind of was shocking to me at least at least especially this this movie um compared to a lot of uh a lot of Ghibli films is much more kind of cartoony. It, I mean, you know, there there are sequences that seem more like they're from kind of a Looney Tunes cartoon where there's just this brash absurdity to like the actions that the, 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 the different characters are taking. Um, I mean, there's there's multiple times during the movie where they have like this large meeting where they're planning like what they should do in order to fight back against the humans, and then like somebody brings food and the entire meeting disbands and all of the little tanuki are just like eating food, and then nothing happens and they just move on to the next scene and I'm just like, well, like what's going on here? Um, but I also felt like Takahata is is working a lot through. Um, a little bit of encroaching on stuff that you're kind of familiar with, with, with studio Ghibli movies, which is you're constantly dealing with kind of this mythological past, this pre-war Japan and its customs and traditions and how post-war Japan is changing. And you're kind of having a lot of this urban sprawl take over and erode a lot of those, those cultures and traditions and pasts. And it does it in a way that I find, I found to be much more, um, much, it's, it's, it's kind of presenting a lot of these ideas, but in a way that's much, um, less opaque than just kind of having the, <laughs> having the Tanuki stand in front of the camera and tell you what's going on. Um, I find it, I, I found it really interesting that he has these moments where like they're trying to plan something and they get distracted by food and everything kind of disbands. Um, and because the, they have multiple instances of that where they'll like have this attack on the humans and it'll be successful and they'll start to kind of gain this notoriety where the humans um, think that they're like these ghosts that are inhabiting the space because I guess also and this goes back to the lore of like what the Tanuki are but they have the these these creatures have the ability to kind of morph into different um, figures and creatures and mythological beasts and such. And so they spend a lot of their time kind of haunting, for lack of a better word, the, the humans at the at the construction sites. And so you'll have these sequences where the Tanuki will come down and they'll haunt the humans and they'll come back. And it's a wild success because, um, you know, that it'll stop production of the construction for a few days. And they have like this wild party and celebrate it. But then they kind of think that like the job's done, like, you know, in in this pre-war sense where it's like you you have the objective and you go there and you stop it and then that like that's it that's there's there's no progression from there um because we're in this this kind of modern um 
way of doing things even though they stopped the the humans from you know the, this construction build for a little time a little amount of time uh you know eventually because of just the systems at at play um but you know, un- unknown to the to the Tanuki, the, the the humans will start you know con- constructing again because no matter how many myths and no matter how many haunts and different things you can throw at them, um, at the end of the day, you know the money is still driving this and the in the initiative to to you know kind of wither away these the the lands in place are are is there and so. Um, no matter how many elaborate plans they can come up with, you know, it, it all kind of goes to rot. And as the movie kind of uh, moves forward, the, the Tanuki are forced to, uh, you know, inhabit them or, or become part one with the, the human life where rather than having this kind of sacred mythological um, portion of land out out in the wilderness outside of this the city instead because the city has kind of encompassed all of their their area they're forced to you know part of them are forced to literally uh, morph into kind of a human figure and just live like a human life with like a nine to five job and and everything while others are just kind of you know sticking as rabid raccoons uh, living through living like this freedom uh, amongst the urban sprawl. Um, it's it's kind of a messy it's a it's a messy movie it's a it's 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 way too long it's like at two, like right at two hours it does not need to be that long um, but I don't know I found it really interesting and I th- I think that this this way of speaking to urbanization and gentrification in a way where it's much more subtle and you're just kind of watching these these uh, these creatures and these in these um, these figures like. See, like take one step forward and think that that one step is enough but uh you know unknown to them it's they're they're actually getting pulled four steps back because that's just how the systems that p- play work um i found that to be kind of interesting and intuitive for um a movie with raccoons with giant testicles so um I would recommend Pompoco if you if you're a fan of Studio Ghibli, it's it's kind of one to go check out, and I think it's also one that gets kind of hidden amongst the the much more well known titles and is is worthy of of um of being out there from this from this company. So um yeah, check it out. Um, I'm going to uh, toss it over to you though, Andrew. You you caught a uh, a movie for fans of of Knives Out. They should check this one out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the movie I'm going to talk about very briefly is Clue, um, which came across, which I decided to watch because my wife Jessie was specifically asking for a movie that was like, but not necessarily Knives Out. And I was like, well, you know, the uh, Next Picture Show podcast paired it with Clue, and I've heard a lot of great things about Clue from my friends, so let's watch Clue. And it's free on Amazon Prime, and I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, this was a delightful uh, quarantine viewing. I mentioned last week that I'm having a hard time deciding on things to watch or actually committing to sit down and watch movies at all. Um, but this definitely held my attention and um, was a, a welcome respite in in the world right now. Um, not a whole lot to say about it. It's kind of a, a campy, tongue-in-cheek murder mystery um, with a cast of a lot of um, uh, character actors that you'll know from various places. Christopher Lloyd um, is in this movie. Um, oh, Tim Curry. What? what 
Tim Curry is the the lead, the butler in this movie. And I think the the best thing that I can say to recommend this is just Tim Curry's performance. Uh, I saw somebody on Letterboxd today say it's one of the best performances of the 80s. Uh, period. And I really can't argue with that. It's it's really over the top. He's doing a lot. Um, very energetic performance. Uh, there's a, a series of scenes near the end of the movie where Tim Curry is rushing is he rushing around the the mansion and dragging everybody with him and reenacting everything that we have seen in the movie up to this point um and just like saying all the things out loud and he's just he's just giving it his absolute all um and it's hysterical um it's one of those uh movies of its era uh, and that era being uh the 80s and also i think this was a thing in the 70s as well where it feels like the script has just been uh, worked through a billion times. So like every single line is a joke or a pun. It reminds me of airplane in that respect. Um, and yeah, it, it never really settles into being a serious narrative because it's not, like I said, it's a very tongue in cheek thing I, I'm assuming this is the first time a, a board game of any sort was adapted for the screen and kind of like with the Lego movie several years back, I think the creators knew that it was kind of a silly venture in the first place. And so they're, they're kind of imbuing the film with that spirit. Um, the, the other thing to say about it that I think that most people have heard about the film, if they've heard about it at all, is that when it first played in theaters, um, it was sent out to theaters with various different endings tacked on to the end. So if you went to one theater, you might get one ending. Go to another theater, you might get a truly different ending. Uh, the version that is on Amazon Prime um, stitches together all three endings, um, which are increasingly delightful. Um, I think that if I only saw one of them, the only one that would be truly satisfying is the last one. Uh, which I, I won't say anything about. I won't spoil why that's the best ending. But I think that that ending is even better after the cumulative effect of the other two endings have already kind of been set up. Um, so I was just really bowled over by it. Really, really delightful movie. Um, Ash, I know you, you really like this as well. Anything else to say about Clue? Yeah. Um, I think <clears throat> one of the... It's been a really long time since I've seen it, but the things that I remember best are Tim Curry <laughs> just being amazing and the endings, like the the multiple endings. I I remember like watching the first ending and I was like, no. And then it's like, wait, but it could have happened this way. And then it goes through the different endings. And I, I also remember, and I don't, again, remember exactly what happens, but I do remember being very satisfied at the end. Um, when the movie finally comes to a close. It's definitely one that I would love to rewatch um, now, especially having seen Knives Out and enjoying mm -hmm. that um, because it reminded me of Clue yeah. and uh, how much I loved that movie. Before. And it doesn't have the same kind of allegorical subtext as Knives Out. It's not a, a movie that has a lot on its mind other than just making the audience laugh. Though there is this weird through line about... Um, government corruption 
and uh, fear of communism being unfounded. Like in all three endings, the one line that is uh, that is consistent amongst all three is communism was just a red herring uh, because the characters always are, keep thinking it's the communists who are behind this horrible plot. Um, but no, all three endings are in agreement that uh, communism not actually as bad as people think. Um, so yeah, it's it's fun. It's a good movie. It's on Amazon Prime for free. Um, you should go watch it if you are so inclined. Very cool. Um, Dylan, take us home. Uh, so yeah, in preparation, you know, I guess to just wrap my head around uh, us trying to watch and talk about Safe today for part two, um, I ended up going back and watching one of uh, Todd Haynes's earlier short films from the 80s. Uh, this one was called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story. And I never actually found the time or opportunity to watch this one. And it's um, it's a it's a real it's a real trip. Uh, basically, the premise is telling the story of the Carpenters, particularly Karen Carpenter, a, a pop group from the late 60s, 70s. Um, and it's all told is kind of like an um, as like a PSA with like um, like a narrator character and text that's kind of trying to specifically explain anorexia uh, because that was key to at least the arc of the story that I was telling here of of Karen Carpenter's life and her um, dealing with anorexia um, throughout her life. She's the first big Um, public case. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can believe that. Um, And the really sticking point beyond it's kind of like uh, PSA uh, documentary style is the fact that it's all shot with uh, Barbie dolls, you know, like it, like every character gets a Barbie or a Ken doll or those kind of equivalent things. And for, you know, for a good stretch, uh, I can see why uh, it might be hard to like focus and not consider how ridiculous it is. But as it keeps going, as uh, Todd Haynes tells this story, uh, it, it only actually unsettling starts to feel more and more real and disturbing what he can get out uh, from the dolls and the vocal performances that uh, characters gave uh, that people gave for the characters. And it's um, I don't know. I was only able to find this um, on YouTube. I don't know if there's like a really good way. I think he thought this was lost for a while and it got like enmeshed in copyright because um uh what is it richard carpenter was like really pissed off at them for making this and getting exposure and like making him look like a bad person because he was basically just really shaming and is accosting his sister particularly in like intense moments of their performances or right before performances of like why she why she can't get it together what's wrong with her these kinds of things and only exacerbating the situation like it does make him seem like a dick and and uh, you know i don't really know much about the story outside of of the short film but if it's anything like this then it's uh it does not make him look good um and i feel like a really strong connection between this and us talking about safe here in a bit is is this kind of uh focusing on a um domestic exposed feminine story in this way like uh so much of this movie because it's about karen carpenter and her dealing with anorexia is so much about body image and in this case because we're working with and watching 
Barbie dolls, there is a uh, reference and tension that goes with directly <laughs> showing these things being portrayed with Barbie dolls. And when we talk about Safe and Julianne Moore's performance and what she thinks eventually is wrong with her, if if that's even the right way to frame it, um, it's it becomes really important at that point to see the whole rest of the frame of all the people, family, things that are around her putting these kind of pressures onto them, them as people and characters and how that seems to uh, <laughs> negatively impact their situation. So um, I'm kind of talking around parts of it because it is such a uh, unselling, surreal experience of watching it. There's this one moment in particular where uh, Karen Carpenter is in the dressing room getting ready, but she is just passed out. Um, and part of this is, you know, uh, she's not eating that much. Uh, she's taking laxatives to try to control her weight. And uh, she's just exhausted all the time. And so she's just passed out in the dressing room. And Richard Carpenter comes breaking in, saying, what's the deal, Karen? Why are you asleep? You need to get up. You got 15 minutes to... And he just starts yelling at her and saying, he's like, yeah, the, you're messing up everything. This is your fault. And the doll just kind of just starts like going up and down just like looks like it's crying and it's just this really weird surreal moment to where this very inanimate object starts to feel very real and um i don't know at that point i can't recommend it enough particularly if you're interested in todd haynes's early films um, i know the um, and if you get anything at a safe so i know the karen carpenter estate has been really aggressive about making this movie unavailable to the public um how are you able to watch it? Uh, so again, like I was able to see it on YouTube. Uh, I, there's like other streaming ways to find it. Um, the movie itself is not, you know, it's meant to kind of look like a really grainy video quality. So that is, you know, it probably could be uh, remastered in a, in a way to kind of give it some more clarity, particularly with this black text on background that gets really kind of hard to read, even though it's trying to, you know, uh, talk about, put out important information uh kind of in this psa style about anorexia but it kind of is hard to read um but yeah no that was that was a real main thing it was like it seems like it got wrapped up in lawsuits and particularly uh richard carpenter was going after going after him when it came out so um i would still try to recommend watching it particularly if um after you listen to our safe conversation or if you watch safe for this um i mean it would be among my favorite Todd Haynes films. Yeah, um, it's. I don't know if it'd be number one or number two, but it's. I think it's one of the most interesting things he's done. Uh, I watched it on YouTube as well several years back. Um, I mean, the things that stuck with me were just the horror of how he uses the Barbie dolls to kind of like carve away at them to to show the the you know the difficulty of of an eating disorder. Um, and also just kind of a a recognition on my part of like how good Karen Carpenter's music is. Yeah. Like so much of it is really moving and I had never um, even thought to listen to her. Um, yeah, I, it's uh, their music. Like I haven't really given it much thought, but I knew it in like this kind of cultural osmosis way where I've just I know I've heard these songs before, you know, whether or not it's, you know, one of those things where they were played on The Simpsons or King of the Hill, you know, kind of one of those like third hand uh, 
uh, <laughs> uh, experiencing of someone's music. But yeah, it somehow because it's portrayed through these dolls and these performances coming out of it, it like yeah, uh, uh, strips away or like um, shows shows it bare in this kind of way. That's like really. So deeply sad considering the rest of the story that's being told around it right so i mean whether or not you just hear the music in this you know clean like separated way that you know the movie's kind of poking at for uh the carpenter's image right but then they have some talking heads on there to actually give other kinds of context it's like no karen carpenter's performances is actually like de- deeply melancholy and subversive in its own way and of itself and and to your point andrew i think the movie kind of goes a long way to try to tie those things together. Well, like you said, uh, it is available on YouTube if you'd like to check it out. Um, let's take a quick break and we'll be back talking safe in just a minute. So stick with us. Hello, Cinematary. This is Zach, your host, and I'm going to use this midpoint in this week's episode to let you know a little bit about what's happening on both the website and the podcast. So first off, uh, I know for a very long time we asked you not to give us any money. Well, things have changed. (laughs) We want that money. I'm just kidding. We just want like $5 a month for the rest of your life. But we're doing a Patreon, and I promise this is all in good fun. Uh, Patreon.com slash Cinematary. I'm sure you've heard us mention it at the end of the episode. We are doing this in order to pay for our writing that is happening on the website. We have a wonderful breadth of writers who are all giving a lot of time and effort to come up with reviews and share their thoughts on the website. And so we wanted to just give back to them in that way. And so that is why we created our Patreon page. So again, for $5 a month, you can get exclusive content from the staff. Uh, Right now, we have our hit series film theory and chill which takes a piece of film theory each month and then deconstructs it uh, in a way that makes it a little bit more accessible and then we end that episode usually with just us rambling about whatever is on our mind at that period of time it's uh it's it's for some people i guess <laughs> but uh you can find that on patreon.com slash cinematary please consider you know making that note donation each month just to uh help the help show these writers your appreciation for what they do Another easy way to kind of keep up with what's happening on Cinematary is signing up for our free newsletter. So if you missed an episode, if you weren't paying attention to social media and you missed maybe a review or something or a video essay or something that we posted, this is an easy way to keep up with all of that. So each Sunday we send out a note. It goes straight to your inbox. It gives you the latest podcast episodes, you know, what's happening on the Patreon page and the last two reviews that are on Cinematary.com. This is a great way to keep up with what's happening and it's a nice way if you forget to go, oh, hey, I'm not, you know, just chilling out on a Sunday. I'm having some coffee doing Sunday things here. I'm going to check out what uh, what Andrew wrote about something or what uh, Nathan wrote about something. Just, you know, we got we got that stuff going. So uh, you can find that on the website cinematary.com. You can sign up for the newsletter again. It's free. And finally, the easiest way to support this show is to go on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a rating and review. You know, this is just how the algorithms work. I know every show asks you to do this, but honestly, if if you could take, um, you know, 30 seconds to a minute and do this, it would greatly, you know, help us. I mean, this helps us just as much as, you know, signing up for the Patreon uh, or letting people know on social media that you listen to Cinematary and you enjoy it. Uh, All of that stuff is, is very helpful, so 
give us a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to the podcast and, you know, share it on social media. Let people know that Cinematary is around. So again, uh, consider donating to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash cinematary. Sign up for the free newsletter and then give us a rating and review on your podcaster app. Well, that is way too much of me talking. You're about to hear more of me talking. So I apologize in advance, but thank you for listening. And let's get back to the show. Part two of episode 292 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be celebrating our patrons with our some Patreon picks. They've given us uh, some selections that they would like us to review, and we're going to kick that off with the incredibly socially relevant 1995 film Safe by Todd Haynes. <laughs> um, for those of you who have been listening for the last few weeks, yes, we're talking about narrative films again. So just calm down <laughs> don't be a dick about there it there are characters and, and stories and, and problems to be solved yeah so uh, I'm glad you survived um, <laughs> this is the one this is the one this is what narrative cinema is <laughs> Written and directed by Todd Haynes, the film stars Julianne Moore, Peter Friedman, uh, Xander Berkeley, Susan Norman, and James LaGrosse. Uh, and the film follows uh, an environmental illness sends a California wife to a New Age guru's clinic in New Mexico, which I think is the vaguest way to uh, explain this movie. Uh, in a 1995 interview with Filmmaker Magazine, Todd Haynes cited films such as Red Desert, Jean Dielman, and 2001 A Space Odyssey as some inspirations for the aesthetic of Safe. He mentioned 2001 again in a 2014 interview with the film stage where he talked about crafting the view of San Fernando, San Fernando Valley, saying, I remember thinking of the films of Stanley Kubrick in 2001 and trying to infuse suburban life with that weird sense of being in a completely controlled environment where there's conveyor walkways carpeted walls and where nothing feels uh it's been bruised by human soiling it's beyond human in a way you feel find this fragile subject carol at the center of this alienated life and world which really does come through it speaks a lot to that city uh haynes continued on the aesthetic inspiration saying most overtly i was thinking of the tv disease film but the film language of horror films was also inspirational i love that moment in hitchcock when you know something is about to happen and suspense is created by prolonging the ordinary the ordinary mundane events that precede this event uh talking about julianne moore's performance he said her courage as an actress was in knowing how little to do to communicate uh, carol's paralysis this is something many actors don't understand some people can't open their mouths very big, can't move their eyes very far, can't move their necks very far. There are reasons why each of these things is blocked or limited and that's something for an actor to use. But you, under, instead of demonstrating all the blockages and all the limitations, she was so incredibly secure about how to approach it. It was amazing to me. 
Uh, he talked about the continued relevancy of the movie to the dissolve in 2004 or 2014, saying, Certainly everything was being interpreted around the specificity of AIDS and HIV at the time that SAFE was made. That was on my mind quite specifically when I was conceiving of the film. At the same time, I wanted to bring up the behavior that we all exhibit around illness, particularly in the way we try to attach meaning and personal responsibility to illness and how much illness and identity are mixed up with each other. Those were definitely motivating interests of mine that I felt were absolutely entirely totally being played out in the AIDS culture around me at the time. Since then, AIDS has faded as the as a number one health emergency in this country due to extraordinary developments in treatment and the great fortune of those developments for many people. I still feel like we are a culture that is continually reminded of our vulnerability to contaminants and illness. I'll let that sit. Writing about the film and its main character in 2005, Julie Grossman concluded that the film is a challenge to traditional Hollywood film narratives with the heroine taking charge of her life. Adding that Haynes sets Carol up as the victim both of a male-dominated society and also of an equally debilitating self-help culture that encourages patients to take sole responsibility for their illness and recovery. In 1995, the New York Times said, Brilliantly, as it begins, Safe eventually succumbs to its own modern malady, as the filmmaker insists on a chilling ambiguity that breeds more detachment than interest. Variety 1995 said the audaciousness that marked Todd Haynes' earlier work has been uh, supplanted by self-important preachiness in Safe. Highly controlled and precise stylistically, the director's follow-up to his award-winning Unzipped Poison uh, and Poison delves into the uh, ominous condition of environmental illness in an arid, pretentious way that will try the patience of even of viewers who come to it sympathetically. And in 1995, Roger Ebert said, You don't always notice it, but during a lot of the scenes in Safe, there's a low-level hum on the soundtrack. This is not an audio flaw, but a subtle effect. It suggests the malevolent machinery of some sort is always at work somewhere nearby. Air conditioning, perhaps, or electrical motors, or idling engines sending gases and waste products into the air. The effect is to make the movie's environment quite quietly menacing. On that note, let's talk a little bit about Safe. Um... I know you were a big fan of this, watching it for the first time. So, Ash, I'm going to kick it off with you. Yeah. Um, I, <clears throat> again, really didn't know what to expect with this one. I'm generally a, a big Todd Haynes fan, so I was excited to watch it. Um, I And I'd, I'd heard sort of mixed things about this movie. I'd, I'd known people who really enjoyed it, and I'd also known people who thought it was really boring and didn't like it. Um, so I didn't have any sort of preconceived notions about it. I was just sort of going in thinking, okay, I'm going to watch a Todd Haynes movie. I'll probably like it, but maybe not. Um, I ended up really enjoying it. Um, I always tend to love Julianne Moore and this particular character, I don't know. Um, I can't think of, I've, I feel like I've seen a dozen Julianne Moore movies, maybe I'm overestimating it, but I've, she's in a lot of movies and, um, I feel like I've never seen her play a character like this before. Um, one that was so self-conscious and, uh, um, like, uh, just completely submissive and, um, uh, her voice is so small. Um, it's it's very uh, um, like dominated 
housewife in the 90s I don't know like it's exactly what um uh I it was I forgot within a second that it was Julianne Moore and um she sort of um like um I don't know it sort of starts out like a horror movie in a way it's like she's paranoid because she thinks that um something is uh wrong with her and no one believes her the uh um doctor says she's fine the husband thinks she's making stuff up the husband is like cussing uh, at her well, for right. like having a headache yeah which no, is the presumption like, for that scene was like he's yeah, mad that he's they can't have runner. sex because she has a headache every night of the week and, and he's being a dick so right right but, but regardless yeah um he's just like going about this the complete wrong way um but the way that the movie progressed was a complete surprise to me um it just starts so quietly and it continues quietly but the stuff that happens just gets really weird um and uh it was very satisfying to watch like this very quiet um movie turn into a still quiet movie that just got like super strange and um yeah i uh i the the way that it sort of shifts into um like one i i like with the one review i forget who wrote it that you just read zach said you know she goes from like this um terrible one terrible environment to the other in a way um and and that's sort of like tragic to watch but um yeah yeah um dylan what about you yeah just to bounce off that point um it's um it, it so much feels more tragic because when she makes that switch at first uh you know you get this comforting it's called what what when Rinwood uh whatever like spa whatever it is it's that not a she, state a state great uh no is that it I, I, whatever it's rinwood though yeah rinwood to where it's it feels really nice and inviting um <laughs> but of course as soon as like uh she gets there in the cab uh, she has one of the um people staying there just yelling at her to stop the car because it's gonna immediately contaminate the area so it's it becomes you know <laughs> it's a shock first but then immediately tries to be welcoming with the people who run it um trying to comfort her and everybody's doing uh what seems like their best to make uh, her feel invited to things and that her experience of the outside world is not so strange and that uh she should feel free to let it all hang out there but as it becomes more and more abundant with the peter dunning character who's like the leader of this space uh it feels you you get more and more of like his words and pressure and this kind of um, uh, self-help therapy thing that only pushes the burden on the individual. And it's only your sickness is only emotional and that you can get through it individually like that. And it becomes more and more tragic as she has to isolate herself more and more um because she's ex- just accepting the things that are going on and trying to figure out the best she can considering and so um 
Yeah, this is the third time I've seen this, I think. Um, and uh, this time in particular, I just that that dread, right? That uh, that Ash in that review, just uh, Ebert's review mention of that, like that low hum, and it just kind of builds and accretes on top of each other. And then it's just like every scene almost just kind of builds on it. Um, you know, sometimes you get like moments of, of like reprieve where it's not there and it's kind of feels fine. Uh, and then, you know, I don't know, like the goofiness of it all kind of happens like this one scene where um, she was apologizing to her husband uh, the night before that scene that um, Ash alluded to for, um, you know, just everything in general. And they come in for a hug and it looks like she's sobbing, but that sob we find out turns into her vomiting on the floor. And then it is just this switch of, of emotion and gear that, yeah, I laughed. It was like really fucked. It was like, Oh, right. Well, yeah, of course it's, you know, <laughs> uh, shouldn't be too surprised. There's a, she's going through a, a lot in a lot of different ways right now. So uh, it was just that presumption for us projecting on to that. Like she's crying and feels bad to where it just careens into this other direction. That the fact that the movie can do, both of those tones that I, I feel like for me just only makes the dread sink in further. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I, I kind of want to zero in a little bit on, on Ebert's point and what we just talked about with kind of the, the soundtrack of safe for the, especially the, the kind of first half, first and second half where it's like her kind of discovering her illness and then her kind of trying to combat it while she's still at home in San Fernando Valley. Um, because yeah, it's like, it's perfectly positioned because she, you know, she's living just outside of LA. It's still very much like a city. And so, um, it's kind of inconspicuous because you would, it, it just sounds to an extent like just being like in a city, like you just kind of hear, you know, humming and, and, uh, motors and, and just kind of things emanating sounds that make a city sound like a city. Um, but it, it kind of, it does kind of drone in this, uh, in this way that it starts to kind of crawl up your skin because it's, it, it like evades that, that more traditional city sounding noises and becomes something much more like viral, um, I mean, Andrew, is this something that you that you noticed like while watching the movie? Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the scenes with I don't know her what her relationship to this woman is, but the woman who tries to sell her on the fruit diet. It's um, just her friend, Linda. Her I friend, think. yeah. yeah she's just... she's sitting in a restaurant with her friend, uh, talking about her illness openly for the first time, and that's when I first started to notice the soundscape a lot because I just um, the way that Haynes is positioned the camera. The, um, the traffic that's going by, they're like sitting on sort of a patio or a, a deck area on this restaurant, and you can see the traffic, and it's taking up about half the frame, and I started to notice that the, the noise of the traffic was just about as loud um, as the dialogue in that scene. And, and from that point on, I was always kind of noticing the, uh, the white noise in, in the background of every scene, uh, you know. I, it, this movie also reminds me of the novel White Noise that uh, oh, asked me we could talk about that a little bit later because <laughs> I know you love that movie. But um, in yeah. or that mo- book, yes, <laughs> I love I'm just used to saying movie about every narrative story. Um, narrative. My general take, my my general take on Safe is that it's great. Um, it it's a masterpiece. It's my favorite Todd Haynes film. Um, it's a movie that I have 
I, I understand that it is slow and it's using a lot of slow cinema techniques. It's, it's using, um, you know, these, these one shot dialogue scenes where the camera is very far away from all the characters and there's no specific place it's drawing your eye to your, the camera or the director just sort of counting on the audience to, to follow what, what's happening. I know there are exceptions to that, of course, but like in a lot of the like party scenes at the beginning, as well as some of the commune scenes at the end. Um, and also there's just so much silence and so much emphasis that's placed on the the soundscape uh, and what carol is not saying and what carol is not doing uh, and the very tightly controlled ways in which she's moving her body i was um i i was i thought it was interesting when when you mentioned that todd haynes was pulling from john dillman uh because i'd I'd not really thought about that connection um but it, it makes so much sense um, after after hearing this. But this is one of those slow movies that I, I kind of can't understand not getting really sucked into. Um, I One of the quotes you read, Zach, talked about how it, it generates detachment more than interest. And I don't know, that just the complete opposite happens for me in this movie. It, there's just a, a tension that's kind of like holding on the sides of the frame at all times and um the the movements that todd haynes is doing with his camera are very sparse very minimal but always extremely tense when he does them like there are these really subtle vertigo shots that happen throughout the film like there's one where she just like walks through her living room and starts to feel a sense of unease and the whole space just sort of warps around her there's another scene where she's She's not feeling very mm-hmm. well. It's early in the morning and she starts uh-huh. drinking a glass of milk. And as she's oh, drinking the milk, the camera is slowly changing its, its focus. And it's on her face, right? It's, it's not like a lot. It's a just a little bit. On her. Oh, God. Yes. Um, and then when she stops drinking the milk, Ugh. that stops. And when she starts drinking it. But like, if you're not paying that much attention, I think that you wouldn't notice anything is happening in the scene whatsoever. But like, if you are paying attention to the way this movie is being put together the 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 form is telling the story a hundred percent of the time um i also think julianne moore's performance is amazing uh, as as you guys have as pointed out i think the movie has a a really astute ambivalence about how to feel about her character um throughout the whole film um on the one hand it is kind of begging you to notice her extreme privilege it's it's focusing on her kind of ordering around her maid fluvia uh there's the scene where she orders fluvia to get her that glass of milk there's the scene where she goes outside to get fresh air and she's kind of wandering around her courtyard and her house is just so enormous you can't even see the whole thing and and her gardens are so elaborate and on the one hand we're supposed to be really wrapped up in this woman's emotional turmoil but on the other hand we're we're kind of noticing her extreme, uh, uh, like conspicuous privilege. Um, and you know, Ash, you mentioned that she's kind of a stereotypical oppressed woman and like in a very specific way, like in the, the Stepford wivesy sort of yeah. way where yeah. everything appears like she's, too she, perfect, like so perfect that she's right. uncomfortable with she's it. She's like ordinary people. Mom. Yeah. Um, and you know, to, to make a connection to another Todd Haynes film, uh, it's it's like she lives in a dollhouse and she's a Barbie doll, um, 
it reminds me of Karen Carpenter a little bit. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of different uh, threads I th- think we can pull on talking about this movie. A lot of ways that you can connect it to different things in Todd Haynes's filmography and a lot of uh, things throughout history and stuff happening right now. But uh, I have a really long list written down of things oh, yeah. I want to talk about. And yeah. I don't want to dominate well, the time. So here, Andrew, that's my general take. Let me let me bounce off a couple of things that you yeah. said. Um that scene that you're mentioning about her walking around the house and she eventually gets outside to the, the courtyard. We part of it is like her husband's looking for, her, but um, that scene is particularly disturbing in the way to where, you know, you feel like she's alone in her house, right. Where she can kind of just wander around late at night, but then she gets stopped by a bright light and you see it's by like, the cops, but by, but not and- only just a cop, but like a cul-de-sac security cop, right. Where it's just like, you know, uh, it's like, Hey, are you doing all right, ma'am? And she was just kind of, you know, walking around her own damn house. And you're like, oh, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not alone. The fact that okay. that's the line, too, is kind of uh, um, putting putting some um, emphasis on her privilege, too, right? Are you doing okay, ma'am? Assuming that this is this woman's house and yeah. she's not just some random straggler who's who's loitering outside uh, of this person's God. Uh, uh, place. Um, and um, so, so yeah. off of that too, um, I think part of what can be frustrating about this movie and why the ambivalence works in such a, a disturbing way is that it's hard to like find a single antagonist or a person to blame here because, you know, at that case, you know, if it's like a, actually, uh, you know, a, a normal kind of horror movie that you know what's causing the horror on some case, or you can feel it in this uh like visualized way but in this case you get all these like it's so abstract distributed and abstracted kinds of pressures that are put on her either from her friends is like hey no you should try this fruit diet no uh, i'm gonna order the fruit diet and then you know because she's feels like she has to conform to the situation she gets the fruit salad too Uh, and these kinds of things um uh between like her husband being mad at her for not knowing what's going on and the doctor just telling her it's like why uh, you know i don't really you look healthy to me can you tell me what's been happening and and she can't explain what's why she just knows that she feels bad yeah in the um in this a fun drinking game would be in the second half of the film noticing every time they say the word <laughs> it to refer to this like vast abstract yeah. problem in the world <laughs> um and, yeah. and to that point to that point Andrew, it becomes particularly concerning in that back half where the guy uh peter drenning or whatever like the the this winwood leader dude who has a nice fancy house on top of the hill um that he's cult leader he's like i have to make a confession i don't read the papers anymore i don't watch tv i just you know all the bad negative toxic things in my life i just had to get it out and it's like yeah, you know it, the 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 disturbing, alluring part about the whole situation at Rinwood and why it feels comforting at first is like on one level you can like yeah you know I probably could cut down on some of the things that are just actively messing with me that I don't feel like I can do anything active about right the certain kind of hopelessness that you can have with the twenty four seven news but he takes it to such an extreme and then has this like level of abstracted distance and privilege from being on the house on the hill where it's just like i mean i guess he can get away with doing that and it's not that big of a deal and not only that but he has an act of reinforcement to make that seem okay in his his compound thing there i mean it's like yeah because that makes him the the last resort of these people they don't there's no 
there's no other way there's no other outlet for their right. rage or uncertainty or vulnerability it's just you know be 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 safe in this you know cozy little womb i've created for right you. which the, thank you for using that word rage it, it it made me remember so specifically that you know it tries to the language that gets used in peter dunning when he's like leading a talk session or whatever somewhere in the middle he tries to target so much of like rage and how that gets like projected into self-hatred but there's this way that like he basically talks down to the that woman mel who just lost her husband can you can imagine why she'd be you know rightly pissed about things and she was saying uh you know uh she was expressing very clearly homicidal rage of you know uh i i would like to shoot everybody that made me like this and it's not yeah. oh my god yeah a rational it's not necessarily like a quote unquote rational expression of that rage, but right. he asked her like, you know, how mm -hmm. she's feeling and, you know, she's tried to communicate that to him. And then, you know, he immediately retorts, well, uh, you need to drop that, you know, take that gun away and, you know, uh, try to try to find a calm space or whatever. That I mean, that becomes the refrain to the situation. And it, and you could just see the look on Mel's face to where it's just like, uh, uh, she's clearly been through a lot of shit. You, and the the woman who plays this character, it's just she seems kind of done with it. But you know, um, it, it it all makes it only more tragic, Zach, that you're bringing up that uh, and of where this movie eventually goes to. I don't know if we want to talk to that last moment yet, but um, I mean, where, where where did you all land with with how the movie kind of ends? Because um, as you can tell from from the reviews from Variety and the New York Times, they did not gel with how this movie uh, ended with the kind of ambiguity. It makes perfect sense, I think. Um, the structurally, the movie is we're seeing Carol go to further and further extremes to find answers to her questions and solutions to her problems. Um, but what she effectively does throughout the film, the the way the movie is structured, is she's withdrawing further and further into different different places of confinement um you know she first makes herself a little safe room inside her huge manor that she lives in um and then she's like going to these group therapy sessions and then she goes to the little commune and then ev and, and eventually she's in the, the safe room in the commune where there's no way that anybody can even see in. Um, and as she's talking to her husband and, and stepson in the last few scenes of the film, she's always reassuring them like, oh, I'm doing better, I'm doing better. But we're all also noticing physically she seems to be worse. Like she has these huge sores on her face. Uh, she's stumbling and and having these coughing fits whenever she's near her husband. She looks um, awful. And so, like, the 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 cure that she's kind of being sold oh, here God. is Ugh. just kind of making her increasingly dependent um, on this one very specific, um, really, like, transactional relationship. You know, you, you don't get the feeling that any of the people who uh, live in this commune are poor, uh, right? Th this is the only a thing that you can afford to go to um, if you have Carol White's money, or sadly to that point, uh, her husband's money, which is her husband's money, which yeah. is a difficult thing because, like, there's a scene earlier on when she was first talking to this very intimidating 
psychiatrist. Oh God, and, yes. Right? Oh, that fuck it. The, uh, and so, he asked, he asked if she works. Yeah. And she says and she, no. She says I'm a house, and then she stops herself. She says I'm a homemaker, uh, but I've been working on some designs uh-huh, uh, my for free my time. house. Yeah, yeah, in my free time. But that, but yeah, that switch from like housewife to homemaker is just uh, oh god. Uh. <laughs> but we of course know that she's not even doing that because of course like Fluvia is doing the actual domestic labor in the house. Yeah, and like I, I think one of the things in the in- ending that stuck out to me is like she, I mean she hardly speaks for more than a couple sentences the entire movie besides. Like, there's the one scene that Andrew mentioned earlier where she's um, uh, at lunch with her friend Linda and, um, like, talking openly about her illness or whatever. And then in the ending scene, when they give her the birthday cake. Oh, God. And she's asked to make a speech. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really, you know, she says the first thing about how oh, you know, thank you guys so much. I could never have done it without you. And then they all clap. And then she just, like, keeps going. And nothing she says makes any sense. It's like... And she says earlier that um, when she's having a one-on-one conversation uh, with Peter Dunning's character, the like, she's still trying to find the words. Yeah. Um, and then when she's forced on the spot to give a speech um, as to how she's doing and how grateful she is to all these people... Uh, exactly like you said, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. She just kind of babbles about chemicals and buildings and cars and reading uh, labels, oh, reading God. labels. And, yeah. but, and so going into buildings, uh-huh. going into buildings. And at that moment, the, I mean, we can call him a cult leader, <laughs> the, the cult leader guy. <laughs> uh, he's the first person to kind of interrupt her and, uh, and give a toast. And that seems like the, you know, the kind, merciful thing to do. But he also has kind of a devious look on his face. Like, this is the moment where he realizes, I got her. Oh, God. You know, she is uh. completely dependent on me at this moment. Um, and, you know, we've been um, very critical of Carol up to this point in the episode. But I mentioned in my opening spiel that I think the movie has a has a serious ambivalence oh, sure. about her character because I think it, it deeply empathizes with her. At the same time, you know, her speech about her speech that kind of illustrates that she doesn't have the words for what's wrong with her. I think um, that's a really relatable moment, honestly, of like feeling like there's something wrong in your life or something wrong with the world. But it's too big, too abstracted, too complicated to really put into that small box of language that you often you either just don't talk about it or you talk about it ungracefully um, or you kind of allow yourself to be suckered into some really fake, bad solutions for that problem. Um, and uh, and I think oh, that... Oh, go ahead. Uh, but no, I mean, just to add to your point, I mean, the words that you know she does use are just kind of faint echoes of the things that she's heard and has been told about what's mm-hmm. going on in her life and she tries to on commercials yeah, and, she, and, and ads she, and things like that and she kind of like tries to parrot those back but then it becomes abundantly clear those don't actually make that much sense to her it doesn't come clear right. through to her it so it's like all, yeah. all of that kind of uh you know feel good individual personal healing 
particularly in there uh, after you get so many scenes of Peter Dunning just like, oh, this is why, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, and then she kind of tries to give her like sliver of that in her own words and she can't do it. And it becomes a thing. It's like, well, I, I yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess it's very clear that this is not working if she can't even really like describe to herself or to the people that she's supposed to be in community with about what's going on. And and what's going on, Carol's condition, could be easily dismissed as hypochondria. Um, sure. Because it's called what? Environmental illness? Environmental illness or, or being allergic to the 20th century. And right. <laughs> and I, but I think that like throughout Todd Haynes's work, um, he is very interested in people who are, you know, suffering new um, problems that that we don't necessarily have language or institutional solutions for yet. I mean, um, it's it's kind of a known fact that this movie uh, functions as an allegory for the the AIDS crisis. Uh, which was very recent uh, when the film came out. Um, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, is about the first major case of anorexia that uh, I, I can imagine in a world where, where anorexia doesn't exist in the public consciousness, thinking that's just craziness. Like, you're not eating? Just eat. You know, it, it's, such, it's an easy thing to hand wave away if we don't find language for it and find evidence for it, but it does exist. And then... Todd Haynes's most recent film, Dark Waters, um, I, I just watched it the other day on Michael's recommendation, and that is a harrowing movie about um, you know the 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 ways in which we are kind of being poisoned by the chemicals of the 20th century. Um, the the movie ends with it's it's all about like the the harmful to humans um, the the amount of chemicals found in Teflon that kind of get transmitted into the water supply and into lots of other uh, things that humans consume. And the, it ends with this title card saying that like nearly every human being on the planet has this chemical inside their body right now because of this one company DuPont. Um, so, and, and also like there's a reference in this movie to um, the yellow wallpaper. Um, she, when, when she's asked to describe her childhood home, uh, the first, only thing she can get out before she's interrupted by an ambulance siren is that she remembers her home had yellow wallpaper, which, of course, is a short story about um, women being uh, prescribed bed rest uh, for all sorts of ailments uh, that just kind of made their conditions worse uh, because scientists, me uh, medical practitioners weren't really taking um, women's health particularly seriously. Um, so, like, I think... Todd Haynes wants us to care about Carol's condition and like genuinely believes that we have kind of like crossed the Rubicon into a, a new world where so much of what we breathe and eat and drink is kind of being um, influenced and contaminated by the, the uh, innovations of the modern world to, to put it nicely. Um, and that that can be really insidious and scary. Um, not to even get into any of the, the COVID-19 um, stuff and how we're not taking that seriously right now. Or, or how people in power who should be taking it seriously right now are not taking it seriously right now. 
Um, well, the other thing I was thinking about while watching this is it comes out in 95. It's set in like the late 80s, but it very much has like that um, kind of uh, Y2K paranoia to it. You know, oh, it, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. it feels very like uh, pre 2000. It, it almost feels like it could have this. It has this kinship with like Heaven's Gate and L. Ron Hubbard and in, in uh, Scientology, like just this. This unexplainable phenomenon that because you don't have like like we've been talking about like because you don't have the language you have to latch on to something that at least makes an attempt at providing language and it seems like this you know kind of leaning into like the cult side of of what where the movie ends up leading um at least the the way that Haynes shot it and the way that it kind of just has this distinctly um this just really deep 90s feel to like kind of melancholy sadistic 90s feel to it uh it 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 feels very much in line with like those and and just y2k paranoia right and i i think you know in to add on to that, in the late 80s, early 90s, the movie is very interested in how the solutions being offered to these problems to scared, vulnerable people are like self-help books and fad diets and this hippy-dippy new age pseudoscience stuff that ends up being manifest in the, the cult at the end of the movie. Um, and today, I think that a lot of a lot of these specific things have fallen out of fashion, but there are I don't know. Uh, have you been seeing the onions on uh, Twitter? People people putting the onions in their houses to keep the coronavirus. Away. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like now, now we're kind of deep in the like the age of digital conspiratorial misinformation, where like people get hooked on brain pills that they get sold by Alex Jones or something. Um, and then there's there's all this like grifterism around various uh, social woes like. You mentioned the onions thing. Also, like there was some commercial that aired on Fox News. Somebody, some lady was selling silver, saying like silver will cure anything. You just like rub it on your arms, rub it on your elbows, and it'll get rid of the the coronavirus. And there was the thing that uh, that Trump tweeted just the other day, like these two random chemicals uh, that he was like all caps t- yelling at people to put into their bodies because it's going to cure the coronavirus uh, when no like medical. Uh, officials have kind of signed off on that um, so we're, we're really in like a scary age of where like there there aren't these and i mentioned alex jones and i mentioned donald trump but there aren't necessarily like specific hubs of like cult leaders right it's just like this this um at these like abstract and seemingly endless tendrils of misinformation kind of like going throughout all of the internet and public culture in general um anyways we can bring it back to sex if you want (laughs) (laughs) any quick final thoughts before we wrap up recommendations on this one um let's talk about can we talk about lester yes for a second thank you right lester i think is worth talking about what did you guys make of this character yes oh my god (laughs) oh no um he's he's going to be me like week four of quarantine (laughs) like like how how did (laughs) Just wearing like a full yeah, how, suit, how, walking slowly through oh, the God. woods. How how was uh how was well, that it's, guy it's described? He's like too, right? uh, he's afraid to eat. He's afraid to what breathe, and so he has like yeah that full body mass thing. And we've never we never see him really interact with anybody except you know being in a far mm-hmm. and just walking in this very stilted no. kind of way, like 
but oh, Herky jerky like puppet <laughs> movements he's doing. Her- yeah. Herky jerky and but like it, you could tell there's like possibly like a very overcautious like thought behind it, but it just only. I'm not really sure. Yeah, what? Yeah, what to make other than yeah, moving like a puppet is a good way to describe it. Um, yeah, I think it's like I I don't know the the movie left me with this weird feeling because I mean as we were talking about earlier, like Carol, we sympathize with her, but it, it and obviously we know that she's sick. We know something's wrong with her, but because we don't know what's causing it, and because she's responding in this like massively paranoid way and sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of like this, you know, this like terribly misled self-help guy. Like we sort of, or at least I sort of was like, Carol, like get yourself together, you know? Um, And, and so I was sort of left with this weird feeling of like, um, you know, the, there's like the whole wall is all in your head thing throughout the whole movie. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it's all in her head, but at the end I'm like, Carol, like you drinking this Kool-Aid certainly isn't helping. You know what I mean? I, I, and <laughs> so it's like, and being in, in this, the, these strange times, sort of that was sort of the like eerie feeling that I left with was like uh like what Kool-Aid do we choose uh, yeah. to drink or not? <laughs> right. What Kool-Aid do we choose to drink? Do you take the Kool-Aid that tells you to just like withdraw from the world and and turn off the news and pretend everything's fine? Do you drink the Kool-Aid that like gets you riled up into blaming some scapegoat on your problems or do you drink a kool-aid that maybe like channels your 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 fear and your rage into a more productive direction right um the movie doesn't really give us that as an option right so to 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 your point then yeah there's a decided switch in carol's character and her ability to verbalize in that midpoint to when she starts to accept these things and tries to take control and that way of taking all these pills and and learning about all these, uh, uh, self-help measures to where, you know, when she meets Linda again and like says all these things, it's the first time we see her not basically asking a question in one form or another that she's actually like Mm -hmm. making a definite statement. Making a statement. Yeah about about herself and her friend is just like oh well i'm glad you uh, were able to find uh, and learn all this uh, knowledge about 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 what's going on and you know it's uh, to to your point about that about that kool-aid to where it's yeah what in this case what language you end up using and how you know how decided it it feels in that way for you as a character and why it makes it so much more tragic to when it it doesn't help in that way um there's uh Oh uh, boy, I I lost that one last thought about the end when she says, in the case, the mirror is the camera, right? The very last scene where she's looking yeah. in. It's just well, it's it's really yeah. scary at first because it's, she just turns to us. Uh, we don't know yeah. there's a mirror on right. that wall. Mm-hmm. She just looks at us and she gets mm-hmm. up and she slowly mm-hmm. walks yeah. up to us. And then eventually there's like the merciful reverse yeah. shot. The merciful reverse shot. She's actually no, looking in a mirror. No, there isn't. Wait, it, no, it becomes wait. a horror movie for a no. minute. 
Andrew, yeah. Andrew, there's there's not one. And not only there's not the one, it's oh. it's a it's a reference to in the middle of the movie, like when she's back at the uh, uh you know, when she's first being introduced, she has that big, you know, talk, the the Peter guy, whatever, says things that Claire sees her, this other like um administrator for the for the, for the she site gives her or whatever. This pep talk while they're in the cabin yeah. together and yeah. she gives her give that pep talk and she's like you know carol's emotionally devastated she's like crying alone by herself you, you know you could isolated sad frustrated all these things and yes carol's trying to be helpful and she was describing what she did for herself to pick herself up is look in the mirror and say i love you i really really love you and you know trying to make this affirmation and uh, the, the very last shot is a decided reversal of what that looks like for carol specifically it's like she's trying to use this same kind of affirmation of language and it just doesn't come across <laughs> and, and i mean it, it shows us that how far in she is and she's just parroting things that people have said to her in the past um she's kind of a true believer at this moment but it's also deeply ironic because you know this is something that um carol should be saying to herself internally she does have um no sense of self-worth um, she, she mentions at one point, like, I haven't really liked myself most of my life. Um, and so like somebody is offering her this, somebody is offering her this self-esteem, but like, unfortunately her vulnerability is kind of being co-opted by some, some grifter who's just trying to take advantage of her. I also think about people like Jordan Peterson, who is offering that same sense of validation and self-worth to young angry confused boys not really giving them a a like productive channel for that anger or sadness or or whatever um it's it's just like you know you need to think of yourself as like this weird warrior king and it like it falls into this this Jungian archetype of of masculinity which is not really gonna get you anywhere ultimately and i think carol's in a similar place at the end of this movie like she's hit a dead end Uh, she's found herself in the igloo inside the inside the the rehab center there's nowhere else to go um but like this is the only place where she's been told that she has value and that's scary and sad uh, and yeah underlining that point that that cult leader guy says at one point uh to mel specifically uh the only person who can make you sick is you and it's just mm-hmm. that such a specific fuck you line that's just <laughs> what the fuck are you supposed to do with that like okay thanks awful awful like personal responsibility worship right there yeah all right well i believe that will wrap us up on uh on safe but uh, we're gonna definitely probably live it for ah! the foreseeable future. Catch catch us walking around in our full <laughs> suits in the deserts of California. <laughs> Coming soon. Um, well, thank you for listening to this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, at Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, big thanks to our patrons over on Patreon, patreon.com slash cinematary. We have a new film theory and chill out for those who are just hanging around the house. Um, you got nothing else to do. Listen to the film theory and chill. It was a good one. We talked about visual pleasure and narrative cinema. 
because after the avant-garde series we're really hammering in the narrative cinema to just really just really thumb our noses <laughs> at the at the, the, the detractors uh, we got some narrative cinema we got for some you narrative cin- we'll get to that in a second um but yeah check out we're gonna be talking <laughs> talk about visual pleasure and narrative cinema by laura mulvey um so check that one out on the patreon page uh pa- again patreon.com slash cinematary thank you so much to cam chad newsom christina daughtry cindy roberts daniel gill harry eskin maggie matthew lingo outfide ron hayes titus arthur tyler chandler and whitney ria ross thank you so much for your patronage uh next week we're gonna get some hardcore narrative cinema with big movie andrew would you like to introduce it it's nomeo and juliet um, the film, the film that my students of very of various populations have been uh, trying to get me to watch for years now, and um, I have refused. And then somebody was like, "Well, I'm going to pony up the money and make you do it," and they did. So that's where we're at now. Here we go. <laughs> because Andrew can't control his students, we're all subjected to an 84-minute movie about gnomes and love. <laughs> With a music by Elton John. <laughs> oh, well, shit. You didn't say that. Never mind. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys. For, thank you guys for listening. We'll hopefully survive next week, but uh, definitely check out that. We'll see you then. What if Safe was the last episode of Cinematary? And we're over. Mm-hmm.